Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into the subjects in the game we all love. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is transfer guru Duncan Castles and delighted to say as well that the return of not just the voice but the face of Italian television football Senor Aurelio Capaldi joins us, football correspondent of Rai Uno of course and favourite contributor to the transfer window. Buongiorno Aurelio. <laughs> Buongiorno, hello everybody. <laughs> Come stai? Bene, bene, grazie. Tutto bene, tutto bene. Great, good. good to have you back, Aurelio. Good to have you back. Thanks. As promised, uh, we will start with news. And that news comes from one of the hottest properties right now in the Premier League and one who actually is not available for transfer. Who is it? Well, it's Dean Henderson, the Manchester United goalkeeper who is currently on loan at Sheffield United. A player who's impressed, 10 clean sheets so far in this as-yet-incomplete season, is currently in a bit of a tug-of-war situation regarding where he will play when a new campaign begins, whenever that is, of course. And our information is that Manchester United are very, very keen to have Henderson come back to Old Trafford uh, to be number two to David De Gea, who, of course... They made the highest paid player in the Premier League when they awarded them a new contract at the beginning of the 2019-2020 season. Um, Since then, he has been liable for some mistakes, uh, both on and off the pitch. As Duncan Castles has pointed out, um, his criticism of team tactics and indeed um, the manager have not gone down well and led to him being withdrawn from being Uh, a candidate for the captaincy uh, position which Harry Maguire now holds. Now, from what uh, our information is, uh, that uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer wants Henderson to come back to United in order to pressurise David De Gea into performing better. Uh, They feel, or there is a feeling at the club amongst some of the football department staff, that De Gea's kind of down tools to a certain extent, since signing his new lucrative contract. And that's led to the decrease in performance level. Whereas, of course, Henderson is um, a very ambitious young man, uh, age 23, wants to be included in England's Euro 2020 squad, a competition which we know will be played next summer in 2021. So Henderson, who um, by all accounts is a very intelligent young man and is well represented in terms of the, his advisors, has a choice. Either he goes back to Manchester United to sit on the bench and hope to get some game time um, at the club or that uh, De Gea gets injured or indeed plays badly, uh, leading a way for him to go back into the first team. Or he stays at Sheffield United, where he's basically first name on the team sheet and can perform to the levels he has done and in doing so, of course, will further advance his career and his hopeful um, ambitions regarding an England call-up. 
It's a strange situation, Duncan, this one, on the basis that Henderson is a registered Manchester United player. And let's not forget, United can recall him from the loan at Sheffield United um, without Henderson having any say in it. But again, my information is that Henderson, uh, being an independent and um, articulate young man, has had conversations through his agents and said that that is not his preferred option unless he's given guaranteed game time. So how do you solve a problem like this, Duncan, uh, if you've got one goalkeeper who is obviously one or has been one of the best in the world in De Gea uh, being paid in excess of £300,000 a week, uh, but not playing brilliantly, and Henderson, who is outstripping uh, in terms of performance, um, his master, his number one at his parent club, playing much better at Sheffield United, and indeed has got the opportunity, ironically, of maybe playing Champions League football uh, with uh, Sheffield United, maybe more so than he has with Manchester United. He does, and that is the other factor in this this whole conundrum, which um, which is is worth noting, is because Henderson's on loan at Sheffield United, Manchester United could actually withdraw him back to their club during the current season, if the current season restarts as um, the the senior um, the non relegated threatened clubs in the Premier League want to, they could bring him back at the end of his uh, contracted loan period and prevent Sheffield United from playing him for the rest of the season. And Chris Wilder, the Sheffield United manager, has talked about it, saying it would be morally correct to leave him playing at Sheffield United for the last 10 games of the season. Although we all know that because of the legalities and the situation regarding expiry of loans, United might take that decision. And then he he adds this... um, uh, comment which um, I don't think anyone can take seriously given how close Sheffield United are and if they win their if the games are replayed and they win their game in hand they go above Manchester United for fifth place as the as the table stands and he says but we're not a threat to Man United so I'm sure they'll be quite happy with the players that they've got to see them through the season the Ford Fiesta ain't going to get past the Ferrari is his comment. Um, so uh, whether, whether you believe that Sheffield United's Ford Fiesta is no threat to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's Ferrari is uh, one matter or another. When we look at the broader picture, um, we talked in the podcast on, on Wednesday about Manchester United uh, expressing an interest in Andre Onana. And there was a lot of um, feedback from Manchester United fans saying, this is ridiculous. We have three of the best goalkeepers in the country, uh, in De Gea, Henderson, and Sergio Romero, why would we need Onana? I think if you look at the dynamic of what's going on with Henderson um, at present and this decision for next season that Manchester United are trying to make, you might understand it better. As you've explained, United are not happy with the performance of De Gea post-signing that record contract. We told you at the time that they, they basically put themselves in a position where they had to pay him far, far more money than any other club was prepared to pay him. So they've saddled themselves with a hugely expensive contract for a player whose performances have declined since he signed that contract. My understanding is there's a, there's a, a thought within the camp that were someone to offer the a contract and the opportunity to move elsewhere, the strategic thing for them to do would be to take that um, wage off their wage bill and sell him and move to another goalkeeper. Now, 
you can let's park for the moment that's going to be very difficult to find a buyer for De Gea because of the coronavirus situation but that has been factored into their planning they're not happy with De Gea so they have Henderson who's had an, a very very impressive season in the Premier League they're not convinced that Henderson's ready to be a starting goalkeeper for Manchester United and, and understandably so I talked to one of the top recruitment people in European football um, about Henderson, he says, yeah, this guy's very talented. He he has a lot of qualities, but there's one thing playing for a mid-table club in a top league and playing for a club that aspires to win titles, that, that there's a different mental challenge to being the goalkeeper for a top team. So that person wasn't convinced that Henderson is ready for it. So Manchester- I, Duncan, hang on. So what you're saying is he's actually, it's harder for him to play at Sheffield United than it is at Man United. Under no, those. no, harder to that, play. It's that, e- that's it's a, that's easier. A joke. To, that was a joke. E- easier, easier <laughs> to. It's you easier. said the mid-table club. <laughs> I get you. I get you. Uh, yeah, but yeah, okay, but it's the, the the analysis is about the external pressures on a goalkeeper and the exposure exposure you get. And and let's face it, Manchester United have very good <laughs> or a very. Um, pointed history of the difficulty of replacing top goalkeepers and putting new goalkeepers in uh, to replace guys who've been uh, top performers for them for for years. Look at what happened to them when they tried to replace Peter Schmeichel and the number of goalkeepers they went through in in the attempt to find um, the the successor. So it's not, I don't think United's reasoning is incorrect here. They obviously want the best of both worlds. So if they can't sell De Gea and they have to keep him, which is likely in a post-coronavirus transfer market, then you bring Henderson back and you use him to press De Gea and get better performances from him. And you use him for League Cup, FA Cup, um, perhaps some European ties of whatever flavour Manchester United are able to secure. But as you've pointed out, Henderson... Uh, doesn't isn't interested in being a backup at Manchester United. He believes he's better than De Gea and believes he deserves to be the starter. Uh, and if you give him the option of um, come back and be uh, the, the pushing reserve to De Gea or have another season at, uh, at a, a Premier League club that's doing well, uh, one that still has the opportunity to qualify for Champions League next season, his preference is the latter. And there you get why Manchester United would be making inquiries about Andre Onana. Onana is a player that they made an offer for last May to Ajax as in the expectation that they might lose De Gea last summer. And so he was the designated successor to De Gea. They would put money down on the table to Ajax. Ajax rejected that deal. That shows how highly they value the player. They're aware that he will leave Ajax in the next year or two. Um, and they want to be involved in the discussions in case things develop in a way that they do, uh, they take the decision to sell to here and the replacement they choose because they, they see another season of Henderson and they still aren't convinced that he is ready to be starter for Manchester United. They go back to their original choice of successor, Anana, who's had a um, very impressive career at Ajax, Champions League semi-final last season, won the title, very close to getting to the final, probably deserved to get to the final. And there's no, uh, it's no uh, coincidence that also Chelsea, also Tottenham Hotspur, also Barcelona are looking at Anana as 
uh, a short, medium or long term recruit. So I think this you've got to get away from the idea of we're Manchester United. We own these three goalkeepers. We'll deploy them as we like. And you look at the realities of, of the transfer market and your planning down the line and the response of those goalkeepers to um the idea that you put Henderson and De Gea in the same squad because they're goalkeepers. Only one of them can play at any one time. And uh, and understandably, um, a young player who, as you say, is targeting uh, becoming England's number one in, in short time, says no to that. Aurelio, Italy has seen many of these situations over the years. And indeed, um, with Donnarumma, you have one in Milan. Um, obviously, uh, it seems like Gianluigi Buffon has decided he's never going to retire. He'll, he'll just keep coming back and back. I'm, I'm, I'm half expecting... He's about to Dino... sign a new contract. Exactly. Listen, I wouldn't be surprised if Dino's off turn up on the bench at Roma at one point as well. So what's your take? Given, given you know, that history that there's been, not just in Italy, but you know your English football very well. What would you? What advice would you give to Henderson if you, you know he finds himself in this position? Well, um, it's a very interesting situation, and um, I think that um, Duncan's point is is right. Uh, basically, um, I also think that uh, uh, for a player, for example, like uh, like Buffon, uh, who is leaving uh, a total a totally different moment uh, of a career. Uh, I think it's it's really hard to stop, even if everybody's saying, okay, now it's time for a new life. But I understand that he, he doesn't want to, to close his career like this. Um, I mean, suspended uh, without uh, even finishing an entire season. So understandably, he... He wants to to keep playing, and uh, he wants to uh, to say goodbye to football with a with an R trophy. Aurelio, what's you you will have watched Henderson, and and uh-huh. obviously you know you know De Gea well. If uh-huh. you were um, making this judgment call for for Manchester United, what would your strategy be? Would you stick with De Gea, or would you say we made a mistake with him? Uh, let's try and move him to another club and promote the young Englishman. Do you think Henderson's ready to be a Manchester United goalkeeper? I think so. I think uh, that um, it's time for a change and uh, I think that he's ready for uh, for a big move like that. Big call from Morello Capaldi there. And I'm sure Dean Henderson will be the first person to be signing up for an interview with the Doyen of Italian football once it gets back. <laughs> to him <laughs> that he's had yeah. earlier's vote ahead of David De Gea. Aurelio, we have had lots and lots uh, of news, lots of speculation and lots of uh, discussion about Newcastle United because of the proposed takeover by Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. One of the big conversation topics just in the last couple of days, has been the potential for the club to sign uh, Napoli centre-back uh, Kadu Koulibaly, who has been wanted uh, in various uh, moments by Manchester United, Manchester City, Chelsea, um, over the last 18 months. 
Um, do you think it's now that reasonable and um, expected that Napoli are willing to part ways with um, their best centre back? And and we've got to ask this question: Is Newcastle a realistic destination for a guy who, in the last three to four years, has been one of the top defenders in Europe? Well, this is a time where it's not easy to talk about market because of what's happening. But um, uh, the relationship between Napoli and uh, Colibali is very different now. A uh, few years ago, uh, Conte wanted to sign him for Chelsea and um, Napoli president Aurelio De Laurentiis said absolutely no. Um, now, I think uh, it's totally different. I think that um, Koulibaly uh, needs a new experience and also Napoli would be happy uh, to let him go if they could get uh, a good offer. Uh, Newcastle has been a whisper, uh, but um, I think that um, um, it's not the same situation, for example, of last year because um, Koulibaly's last season uh, was not so good. He had lots of physical problems. He had injuries. Uh, basically, he made mistakes and uh, he went unnoticed. So um, I think that Napoli uh, are happy to let him go if they get the right money. But it's, it's hard to identify the right quantity of money now because uh, Koulibaly at the moment is not the player that used to be. So, um, so it, it, that is something which must be uh, discussed. Aurelio, what, um, what's Koulibaly's current wage? And what do you think would be an acceptable offer for him given those circumstances and given the market, the depressed transfer market we're looking at? Koulibaly is earning around uh, 7 million uh, euros net per season and um, as you can remember two years ago uh, market reports uh, were saying that um, there were clubs ready to buy him for uh, 100 million uh, euros Um, I don't think that is the case now (laughs) not only for um, for Koulibaly's performances recent performances uh, not only for uh, the injuries he had to face, but also because the market has changed and the market is still changing. And uh, everybody's trying to to realize uh, the new shape of the market. Now, for example, uh, many, many agents believe that uh, uh, there will be lots of loans, but that is something which uh, will be seen. Anyway, I think that uh, Napoli are trying to find the right balance uh, between uh, the the value they give to the player and the realistic offers that will come. And Napoli's finances, are they one of the Serie A clubs that are particularly endangered by the current situation and maybe forced sellers because of that? No, Napoli's finances are not in danger because... Uh, they they are very careful to the expenses, and uh, so they are not um, 
supposed to make big investments, but on the other side, they are not forced to sell players. Uh, they are not facing um, a big crisis. Of course, uh, they they are living uh, this time, so this is a, a very difficult time for every club, but they are not in danger. Your information, and you've been absolutely um, leading this story uh, from the start when um, the PCP group and PIF uh, representing Saudi Arabia uh, looked to invest in Newcastle United. Your information is that Actually, there is no urgency about them dipping into the transfer market for someone like Koulibaly, who would be an expensive signing. Yes, look, the the guidance I have from within the consortium is they're very clear um, that they want to do this within financial fair play rules. That's one one. Um, thing that they're, they're clear on. They don't want to go down the Abu Dhabi, Manchester City route of ignoring the rules and pumping huge amounts of Saudi Arabian finance in to propel Newcastle to the, the top of European football from the start. That's not going to be the strategy. They're also conscious that a lot of takeovers have resulted in uh, clubs being ripped off by agents and and buying very badly immediately post takeover, um, kind of rushing into the market, making bad decisions that take a while um, to repair as the, the the new ownership understands football more properly. So, and if you ask them about specific individuals, and for example, there's been a lot of stories about Maurizio Pochettino, they say there hasn't been any conversations with from PCP with Pochettino and they're they're adamant that Steve Bruce will remain in charge for at least the remainder of this season uh, and that they're not actively looking for a manager. They also say that the vast majority of the reports about players, especially big name players and their interest in them that we've seen um, have got nothing to do with them. They're not actively trying to buy players at present and I think Koulibaly would definitely fit in that car- uh, that category of very expensive players that they would they would if they were to go for a deal like that they'd take a, a considerable length of time overdoing it um, they have people working advising on uh, recruitment strategy and rebuild they want to put a director of football in place and that will be one of their first appointments um, what I'm told is they are actively looking for strong candidates for that director of football role. They, although they have people in place who will be, uh, I'm told, invo- involved in the decision-making process and will have the opportunity to be um, formally appointed director of football if they get approval from the Premier League to complete this takeover. They're also looking at external candidates. And what I understand is when discussing the position with external candidates, their pitch to the external candidates is, we don't have a coach yet. Um, We haven't decided on which players we're going to buy. Um, You tell us how you would run this project from a recruitment point of view. Um, and that's part of the interview process. They want to see who comes up with the best strategy. And, you know, that might be a data mining process on their part. They might be intelligently talking to uh, candidates from across European football, top candidates, getting them to sit in a room and and present them with names. That would be a sensible way to go about it. But 
that's what they're doing. And as I say, the 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 guidance I get from inside the consortium is ignore the stuff about transfers. That's not where we are at the moment. Um, we'll, we'll run through that process properly once we actually have control of the football club. So Duncan uh, has spoken there, Aurelio, about um, Newcastle's desire not to be exploited by agents in the way that other clubs have been um, in recent years in the Premier League when they've been over uh, taken over by a wealthy patron. Um, a director of football is obviously central to the um, issue of recruitment and making sure that there is a cohesive um, uh, both policy and practical um, recruitment policy. Anyone come to mind for you who might represent the right person that Newcastle could get for that particular job? Of course, it's important to understand exactly the kind of profile uh, they're looking for. But, for example, Franco Baldini uh, is a guy who knows the market and uh, is uh, is capable of doing uh, that kind of job. So he might be an option. And and anyone else, Aurelio, who's regarded as the top sports director in Italy at present. Top sport direct in Italy had the top sport without, direct. without without upsetting your contacts too much, Aurelio. No, 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 but <laughs> <laughs> no, but but the the thing is, um, for example, Marotta is uh, is uh, committed to Inter Milan, and uh, he will not move. And uh, um, Fabio Paratici sticks with uh, with Juventus, so um, there are not um, many many Italian options. Duncan, have you got anyone in mind? I, I think I think you've got a project like this, and um, it remains to be seen exactly how much money. PIF are prepared to put into it and what the time scale they're, they're actually going to give themselves to get to the top of the game, which is what the, the stated aim is. But in principle, that's going to be a project like this with a hugely um, wealthy sovereign wealth fund behind it is going to be attractive to a lot of candidates, which means you have the opportunity to talk to a lot of the top recruitment specialists in the game. I don't think uh, sports directors are overpaid yet so in a sense you can get real value for money by by hiring correctly with the sports director and I think you know there are a couple of obvious candidates you would have you'd certainly have Paul Mitchell um, on your list given what he did at Southampton Tottenham and what he's done with the Red Bull group um, uh, in his time since moving to the Bundesliga so you've got there someone who knows the Premier League who has been able to recruit um, on relatively restricted budgets and and create a lot of value and, and identify talent. Um, and also someone who's worked in, in European game um, for a number of years now. So you get dual advantage there. And then the other, I think, obvious candidate would be Lewis Campus at, at Lille, who, if, if you're talking about a man who's made the most transfer money for his clubs, 
who has identified, you know, supreme talents um, who've been undervalued at their clubs. Guys like Bernardo Silva, who I would argue was the best player in the Premier League last season, um, obviously uh, intimately involved in Kylian Mbappe's development at Paris Saint-Germain. There's a huge list of players he's been involved in. He's the guy that Jose Mourinho wanted to bring to Manchester United um, as sports director when Ed Woodward um, proposed the idea of bringing a sports director in. He was the only one he was prepared to work with, which tells you something. He's a guy who has proposed to come in at Tottenham, where Daniel Levy, to, to bring a sports director in. He's on record as saying he'd be interested in working the Premier League. If you could convince an individual like him to come and work on a project like that, I think you give yourself a huge head start over the competition and, and an ability to to make the most of whatever resources Saudi Arabia are, are going to put into it, contacts and expertise. And, and I think far more important these days than a coach is if you can get a sports director of that quality who would then also help you with the appointment of a coach and, and keeping that coach working in, along the, the project that, that you have intended for the club. It will certainly be fascinating to see how that develops with regards to uh, the people coming in to take control of St James's Park. For now, though, um, I'm intrigued, Aurelio, by, um, first of all, the fact that for the first time in a long time, we saw the major clubs in Serie A invest huge amounts of money in um, player recruitment last summer, uh, obviously um, helped and aided by changes in taxation laws in the country with regards to uh, foreign nationals. Um, Inter and Juventus in particular recruited heavily um, with a degree of success which you could judge to be better or not. Um, into this window, whenever it opens, uh, what do you see happening with regards to some of those players who joined last summer but haven't quite worked out? I'm thinking about Adrian Rabio, uh, Ramsey at Juve, uh, and also maybe a couple of the Inter players as well. But the fact that as well, the market having moved towards um, and will move towards a much more stripped down, less cash frenzied um, exchange where player swap deals and uh, trying to dispose of players will be almost as important as recruiting players. Do you see some big names leaving Serie A and then in doing so, uh, maybe in exchange for other players coming in? I think that uh, the strategies will be different according to the different situations of the clubs. For example, AC Milan uh, will work on a, on a different strategy because they want to appoint uh, the German coach Ragnick and uh, with Ralph Ragnick in charge, uh, they want to, to choose young players, emerging players, faithful to his philosophy. And so basically they, they don't want to spend crazy money, but they want to produce uh, some, uh, the development of some young players. Uh, while uh, it's different, for example, for uh, Juventus and Inter Milan. Uh, they they will work on different strategies. But for example, uh, Pjanic is a player 
who might leave Juventus. Uh, Barcelona are interested in him. Mm, Juventus uh, are interested in, uh, in Arthur, although uh, Barcelona are not happy to, to let him go while uh, they, they would offer Rakitic or Vidal. But uh, basically, uh, it will be a market uh, with, um, with different strategies. And uh, of course, there are clubs uh, which will need to, to cut wages or to get rid of uh, players uh, too expensive. And of course, it will depend also on the offers you were mentioning, for example, Ramsey. Uh, I cannot say that Juventus are not happy about Ramsey. Uh, but what if they get a very good offer for him? They might think of um, of selling him. Uh, so so basically, uh, it's an open situation, and um, Pjanic is a candidate to leave Italy, in my opinion. Aurelio, it strikes me that that Italy has a, a sort of peculiarity because of the new tax laws that were introduced, which allowed. Um, Italian clubs to hire players from outside Europe and put them on um, lower tax rates than than players from Italy and players who were already at the club. And it, it strikes me that Italian clubs could use that to lower their cost base um, this window by, for example, selling some of their established stars. Like, you know, um, a guy like Chiellini, for example, who's often been linked with, with Premier League football, um, uh, uh, or Dybala, move them out of the league and then replace them with overseas players who who they can give a bigger salary to, um, a bigger net salary, but it costs them less as a gross salary. Do, do you think that would factor at all in any way in an attempt to get Paul Pogba? We, we often hear Juventus um, being linked with Pogba and one of the few escape routes he has out of Manchester United. Could could Juventus just about make the deal work by using that tax law to, to get him on their books? They are exploring the situation with Pogba, uh, but uh, the deal is not easy also because they spent uh, a lot of money with uh, the deal about Ronaldo. And... Um, about the examples you mentioned, it. for example, Chiellini. Chiellini is staying at Juve, 100%. Uh, Juventus um, uh, just don't want to get rid of him. And mm-hmm. uh, Chiellini wants to finish his career at Juventus. He also has plans to stay uh, and work uh, with Agnelli uh, the, the next year. He's, uh, he graduated in economy and he already has clear on his mind that uh, he will stay at Juve and work as an executive. Um, and uh, the, Dybala, the Dybala future uh, is still very open. Basically, Juventus keeps saying that they, they want to keep him. Um, but Dybala uh, wants more space. Uh, for example, Juventus' former uh, coach, Massimiliano Allegri, thought that Dybala and Ronaldo could not play together. They were not made uh, to play uh, together. That was his thought. And so on many occasions, um, he used to to start Ronaldo and uh, put Dybala on the bench. 
Mm, with Maurizio Sarri, uh, they play together more often, but basically uh, part of the problem remains. And uh, the thing is that Dybala wants to become a symbol of Juventus. And he's got offers. For example, it's not a mystery that um, uh, in Germany, Bayern uh, always seem to be excited about him. But of course, uh, as I said before, the, the new market is uh, taking shape. So lots of things will have to be uh, found out and discovered. Um, Dybala uh, is just uh, back uh, from a very difficult period because um, he, he was found positive and uh, uh, what was impressive is that uh, uh, he had to face uh, the virus for, um, for five weeks. Uh, and uh, it was a very, a very tough time for him because uh, the first test was negative, and then um, uh, he, had, he had the second test was positive, and then the last two tests were negative again. So uh, it took so long uh, to have him uh, back with a smile on his face, and uh, Juventus were worried. Uh, but now uh, he seems to be much better. And uh, he has said to some friends of his that he wants to stay at Juve and become a symbol of Juve, a key player to Juve. When Juventus gave him the, um, the number 10 shirt, uh, which, is a, which is a very important shirt for Juventus, they were thinking um, of Dybala um, becoming a symbol. So now uh, it depends on, uh, on what happens in the, um, in the future months, but uh, the idea is to, to keep him. Then if an incredible offer comes, uh, things might be different. Really, let's move forward to what may happen in Serie A regarding a restart of football, because... Obviously, we had news this week that the Bundesliga is due to start in one week's time. Italy was the worst affected of the European nations uh, early on with the pandemic, um, but also one of the first to close football down. What's the, um, the feeling now with regards to Serie A restarting? And what are your thoughts with regards to the possibility of that happening in the next two to four weeks? I think the situation in Italy is still very open um, because um, there are some um, meetings uh, still planned and um, of course uh, everybody is trying to, to put pressure uh, to protect his position. Uh, on one side, the Italian Lega Serie A, which is formed by the, the 20 clubs of Serie A, uh, they want to, to go back and uh, finish the season. The Italian Football Association uh, would be very happy to finish the season. On the other side, part of the Italian government is skeptical because uh, they had to face a very difficult situation for the virus. 
and uh, they had to uh, take into consideration strong measures uh, to protect people. Uh, and so uh, basically um, there are meetings between the technical and scientific commission of experts of the Italian government and the medical staff of the Italian Football Association. Uh, they are trying to uh, to get an agreement and they are trying to put on a document uh, which must become a reference uh, if the Serie A is back. Uh, they should be working towards a, tom a common goal, uh, but um, it's not very easy and um, there's not plenty of time for them to get right. So basically, uh, one of the, the main points is what if a player is found positive? Uh, let's isolate him and uh, go on, says the, the Italian Football Association, while uh, part of the government experts say, let's stop all the people involved. So uh, if that happens, of course, it becomes very difficult to restart. Uh, because uh, just to give you uh, an example of the of the the last hours, uh, six Fiorentina people were found positive. Uh, three Sampdoria players were found positive. Uh, one Torino player uh, was found positive. Uh, okay, uh, this morning uh, Inter. Uh, provided the results of the tests and there were zero players uh, positive but um, of course positive players uh, can be found anytime so uh, that's that's a key question what if a player is found positive uh, if the if the solution is the one uh, preferred by the football association then they can try if the um, the, the strong part of the government, if the, the, the strict experts of the government um, keep their point, then it becomes very difficult because uh, if they have to stop all the people involved, uh, of course, it becomes very difficult for the Serie A to start back soon. In in, in England, um, we have a situation where the government want football to restart. But as, as we've explained in the podcast, there are a number of Premier League footballers, in addition to a number of Premier League clubs, who don't want to play again. And that strikes me as being the ultimate block. If the players refuse to play, you have a substantial problem. And obviously in Italy, you stopped first because the players were on the point of, of going on strike and didn't want to um, suffer that uh, that risk any longer and put their, their family and friends at, at risk. What's the sense amongst the players in Serie A present with these competing proposals on, on returning to play? Do you think there's going to be players who will say, it doesn't matter what you tell us to do, we're, we're not going to play? Uh, many, many clubs said that uh, they found... Uh, the availability of their players to restart. First of all, uh, not uh, all the clubs in Italy uh, are pushing to restart. Uh, 
there are a few clubs uh, ready to stop the season uh, because, for example, they are afraid of uh, being relegated. Uh, so everyone is trying to protect his interest. Uh, but uh, today, Damiano Tommasi, the head of the Players Association, spoke and he said that uh, uh, some players have been found positive for more than three weeks. For example, Dybala is one of them. And uh, Tomasi said this is very worrying. So uh, that's another point. Uh, there are, of course, also uh, some worries about uh, players' health. And not only uh, about players' health. Uh, because everybody is talking about uh, the fact that football uh, is a game where uh, contact uh, is always there. And it's true. But, uh, for example... Uh, another another reason to get worried about is the um, the transportation, the movement of the group of people, because it's not as you know, it's not only uh, players who travel. Uh, it's all the, the group of people working for a club. So it's not it's not that easy. And you you have a, I guess an additional complication in Italy, and that the, the the title race is very tight. There's just one point between the teams, Juventus and Lazio. So you have an issue of if, if you stop as it is, who do you give the title to? Can you give the title to anyone? Is that, is, is that part of the reason why the club, the, the league wants to restart on top of the money perspective is the, to avoid the complication of having to allocate uh, the title to one of these teams? Well, um, lots of people spoke about it in Italy and, uh, uh, of course, um, the, the opinions were different. Um, for example, uh, Lazio chairman Lotito, Claudio Lotito, uh, he said, OK, if we cannot restart, let's play one game, Juventus-Lazio and uh, the team who wins... Uh, get mm-hmm. the Scudetto and everybody was laughing because, <laughs> of course, uh, it is not something <clears throat> that you can do. Uh, you cannot uh, give the Italian title just on the basis of one game. Um, the Italian Football Association chairman, Gabriel Gavri- Gravina, said that uh, he doesn't uh, want to be the director of a funeral uh, of the Italian football, so he wants to to do everything in his power uh, to make Serie A start the game. Um, the Lega of Serie A uh, wants to be back in action, uh, basically for uh, for money reasons, because um, the televisions uh, are paying only if the only if the the games are played, although there is a dispute about that because the the Lega Serie A said uh, whatever it happens, we want our money. Um, the televisions, of course, are asking for discounts or are um, are trying to understand uh, better what is going on. And uh, basically, it's a problem if Serie A doesn't doesn't start again because. Um, the football of Serie A uh, pays more than uh, one billion 
of pounds in terms of taxes to to the Italian uh, government, and um, uh, most part of that money is used to finance the rest of the Italian sports. So everything is very linked, but uh, on top of that, uh, it's also important to talk about the health of, of the players and all of all the people involved uh, in, uh, in the football of Serie A. Uh, that, that, that was something I wasn't aware of, that the, the tax from Serie A was used to fund the rest of Italian sport. Um, it's obviously something that doesn't happen in the UK. How does that change the, the dynamic in terms of the politics of other sports? Are they putting pressure on Serie A to restart um, in order to get the cash back into their sports? And, and are they able to do that while <laughs> producing uh, safe policies for the restart of their own sports? Everybody's trying to find a balance uh, between the need to restart for um, financial reasons, for um, for the simple need of entertainment too, because uh, we can't forget that uh, in Italy, of course, not only in Italy, but also in Italy, football uh, is a very important part of the social life. Um, and on the other side, uh, the, the health uh, problems and uh, the special attention that uh, the health of the players uh, and, all, and uh, the health of all the people involved must have. So it, it's very hard to find this balance. And uh, that's why uh, the, um, the committees uh, and the Italian Association uh, and the government are working on that. Uh, I would say that the, the situation is still open because uh, the, the situation seems to change every day. Um, the opportunity is still there, but uh, there is not plenty of time. And on the other side, um, uh, if, the, if the Serie A doesn't start again, the rest of Italian sport uh, is going to be affected by that. Aurelio, one last question with regards to the future, um, not just of Italian football, but European football. We have spoken on the podcast recently in detail about the possibility of a European Super League and how the current pandemic um, could well be a catalyst given the economic uh, consequences for football of what's going on right now. Obviously, Juventus owner Andrea Agnelli has been at the forefront of supporting that particular idea. Has there been any further developments in Italy with regards to the possibility of a Super League um, forming and indeed in the next 12 to 18 months? Not really, because uh, the discussion uh, was basically on the on the Serie A, and uh, even Agnelli was uh, was talking about that. Of course, the the economic impact uh, was so huge that um, the main Juventus worry was to to reach an agreement uh, with its players to to cut wages. Juventus were the first 
Italian club to reach an agreement with the players uh, to cut four months of wages. Um, and uh, so in, in they gave an example to the other clubs in, in terms of money. Uh, but uh, the situation was so difficult that uh, at the moment um, no further developments uh, about what you mentioned. Aurelio, just, just quickly, how did Juventus manage to get their players to accept a four-month wage cut so quickly? Because we've seen such resistance to that, uh, wage cuts and wage deferrals in English football. It seems remarkable that Juventus got a massive discount off their wage bill and bought themselves that insurance policy um, by by securing that with their playing staff. Yeah, um, the agreement uh, was thought uh, by Chairman Agnelli, but basically the deal was done uh, by Chiellini and Buffon. They are the leaders of the dressing room and uh, they are basically the, the players um, who persuaded the teammates to accept this agreement because um, they, they said now it's very important um, to, to do this because the club uh, needs to, um, to protect uh, the, the structure and uh, needs to, to keep being solid even in this situation. So we must do this sacrifice. So basically Buffon and Chiellini were the two leaders of the dressing room who managed it. Uh, to persuade the, um, the teammates to accept this. They made a lot of phone calls and um, Agnelli was very happy about that. Uh, now I understand. If Giorgio Chiellini um, instructed me to do something, I guess I'd sign on the dotted line pretty quickly. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> not a man to argue with. He's, he's a man you would not want to um, meet outside a nightclub. <laughs> and I say that from experience. You will also you will also promise their players that if the season starts again, they will um, get uh, part of that money back. Uh, so it's up uh, to what happens in the future. But um, um, at that time, so one month ago, when they reached an agreement they needed to, to make that announcement, so they needed a quick decision and uh, the players were um, were ready to help. No doubt the players were sending Chiellini round to recover that money as well. <laughs> uh, good lad that he is. This has been uh, Friday's Transfer Window podcast. We're going to end uh, with our um, traditional quick-fire round. Uh, I have to say that Duncan Castles unusually, unusually has um, opted out of taking part. I think this is partly because Dundee United have never had uh, any Italian players who played in Serie A because uh, I'm going to challenge Aurelio uh, to choose a five-a-side team of his best five Serie A players he's seen playing. In do I have league. to choose? Do I have to choose only my team or all only your team? Because I, I am, I'm stepping uh-huh. into the breach, Aurelio, and I've chosen my team, being a big fan of Serie A and not the sand dancers of Dundee United. So <laughs> I, I, I now have a, I, I now have a team. 
We want to hear Aurelio's first before. Sensational. Uh... Aurelio, so here we go. It's it's now round robin. Which team will win out of the three five sides? Aurelio, please name your five side team. All time Serie A. <laughs> okay. Uh, I will go with uh, Buffon, Roberto Baggio, uh, Roberto Mancini, <sighs> Alessandro Del Piero, Francesco Totti. Nice, nice. Mancini, I think, is a mistake. He's a bit overweight on the hips, but, you know, let's see what happens. Uh, Duncan. Oh, you do yours, Ian. Okay. Oh, oh, oh. Duncan's Duncan's obviously got got something up his sleeve here. Uh, Okay, so, uh, Gigi Buffon, I agree with completely uh, um, earlier. So I'm playing a, a one at the back. So I'm having Franco Baresi. Celebrating his 60th birthday today is my obviously the my good one call, defender. Good call. My one defender. He he will sweep up anything that's going on there. <laughs> uh, I'm going to play Roberto Baggio, the divine ponytail on the right. Uh, Alessandro Del Piero at the top, and my left-sided attacker is going to be the one and only Diego Maradona. <laughs> Can't beat that, Duncan. Sliding in, a, sliding in an Argentine when we we were only picking Italians. No, 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 um, Serie A players, Serie A players. Uh, I thought all Italian, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my... Who, would put, who would put Maradona out? <laughs> <laughs> well, partly you would, Aurelio. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you who'll put Maradona out because this my strategy for this round robin is slightly different. I'm going to have Buffon in goals. And then I'm going to have um, Maldini as one of my defenders. Um, the aforementioned Giorgio Chiellini as another destroyer. Oh, and Claudio, too many Gen- defenders. Claudio Gentile to deal with Maradona. What? Wow. Christian Vieira up front. So um, we're going to kick you off the park, basically, and then I'm going to have Gianfranco Zola to come on. And, uh, oh, <laughs> you're so basically, you, you want to win 1 0 every time. That's what you're saying. It's an all time Serie A Italian team. What do you expect? It's Catanaccio. It's Catanaccio. That's what it is. Marvelous, marvelous Gianfranco Zola. Indeed, indeed. Magnificent gentlemen, thank you very much for your um, all time Serie A five sides. Uh, all of our listeners, if you have different um, selections that you would like to send to us, and please do, you know where to find us. We are on our social media channels at Transfer Podcast on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook. Uh, you can also find Duncan at Duncan Castles on Twitter, myself at Garbo SJ, and the great Aurelio Capaldi at the great Aurelio Capaldi uh, on Twitter as well. You know that we love to hear your points of view, so please do engage us with the debate that you have heard here today and going forward. Also, uh, if you want to give something back and we know that you appreciate what we do, uh, please go onto iTunes, uh, give us a five star review, and that obviously helps us to enlarge the Transfer Window podcast community. Simply left for me today, and it's been a real pleasure to see. Thank you very much to Duncan, and especially to Aurelio Capaldi for joining us from the eternal city of Roma. Aurelio, um, always a pleasure to have you on, um, and please come back and talk to us soon. 
Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Nice <laughs> to talk to you. Grazie, amico e fratello. Grazie. <laughs>